Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the recent developments in international coordination towards a global minimum corporate tax. This summer, over 130 countries agreed, in theory, to collaborate on developing a global minimum corporate tax. If widely adopted, the policy would put a dent in multinational corporations' abilities to reduce their global tax burden by locating operations in and shifting profits to low-tax jurisdictions. In today's episode, we discuss the scope of the proposed global minimum tax as well as its likely consequences. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. So today is a very special episode of Taxes for the Masses because we are together. Lakeside, Austin Hill Country, the nature sounds you hear behind us are real. Yes, and we are educating not only humans about corporate minimum taxes, but also some dragonflies. Lizards. Maybe some sea turtles, not sea turtles, but lake turtles. Lake turtles. Some fish. This is going to be interesting because we are at a resort that has a very strict no cell phone policy, and we are out in the corner with an entire tech setup. So we're going to see how long... Breaking the law! Breaking the law! We're going to see how long that lasts, but it's for a good cause, so maybe they will let it fly. If you get me kicked out of this resort, I will disown you. Do you see what we risk for you to, to bring you tax news from anywhere in, in the world? <laughs> we risk it all for our listeners. All right, so Lisa, I know that you've been eagerly awaiting our opportunity not only to podcast from the same location, but to discuss this global minimum tax, which is also called the Global Anti-Base Erosion, or GLOBE. So I'm just going to start right off the bat with a super hard-hitting question. What do you think of this nickname? I don't love that nickname. Um, The Globe makes me think of Shakespeare and the Globe Theater, who incidentally, when I was researching this podcast, I learned is an accused tax evader. You know, I would be surprised, but I really think that all the great ones are, right? Shakespeare, Willie Nelson, Wesley Snipes. Donald Trump, (laughs) allegedly. Um, Back to the global minimum tax. This idea of a minimum tax is not necessarily new. The OECD and its 137 countries have been working for years on what they call their Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Initiative, or BEPS. And phase one of that project had over 15 different items alone that took a huge first step towards increasing tax transparency, primarily by requiring large multinationals to privately report to tax authorities their revenues, their profits, their employees and assets, etc., for each country in which it operates. Phase one made a lot of progress for sure, and now we're on to phase two, or BEPS 2.0, as some people call it, to make it sound very fancy. The global minimum tax proposal we're talking about today, the idea is to ensure a minimum level of tax is paid by all corporations, regardless of where they are headquartered or incorporated, and regardless of where they operate. Yeah, so the novel feature of this proposal is that it's a coordinated response to perceived tax abuses of multinational corporations. So let's start with that phrase, perceived tax abuses. Lisa, income shifting is your bread and butter. How much income shifting do you think is really happening out there? I think the answer is we don't know. It's a good answer. There's a big debate among researchers right now, actually, about how much income shifting is really happening. So on the one side, you've got Kim Klausing, an economist out of UCLA. She's using um, some government data to estimate that the U.S. could be losing as much as $100 billion in tax revenues each year 
only because of this multinational tax abuse. On the other hand, you have a couple of accountants, Jennifer Bluin and Leslie Robinson, pointing out that there's some double counting in the numbers that are being used. Yep. And so they rerun the estimates trying to fix that double counting, and they come up with a number that's only a tenth the size of the number put forth by Kim Clossing. So we've got a pretty wide range being estimated out there. Yeah, I just, I want to cut you off right there so that we can all just sit and kind of digest that because these women that we're talking about are really smart women. They're very careful in their analysis and they are coming up with estimates that are orders of magnitude different. And so I think that highlights how difficult it is for policymakers kind of to know how to start because if you don't know what the how the scope of the problem is it's kind of difficult to fix it so where do you think the true number is i think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle and let's be clear whether it's 100 billion or 10 billion those numbers are being lost annually just by the u.s so even if we use the lower bound if we add that up across a whole bunch of different countries that are all losing out on tax revenues that becomes a pretty big number pretty quickly no matter how you spend it right and so regardless of the amount we know that it's not zero and these estimates and to be fair what we're going to talk about on the podcast today focus on the perceived negative behavior of the multinational corporation itself, the taxpayer. So a lot of what we hear in the news and what we like to focus on is that these taxpayers, these corporations are out doing all this bad stuff. But we want to take a minute to talk a little bit about the fact that there's also some responsibility that the country itself has to take for enabling this type of abusive tax avoidance. And I think that's such a good point that we need to think about. As much as we like to think that all the bad tax behavior is the fault of the taxpayer, in this case, I think we need to look to the governments as needing to shoulder some of this responsibility. So talk a little bit about what we mean when we throw around the terms international tax competition and the race to the bottom, and how does a global minimum tax propose to solve this problem? So it's pretty basic game theory, right? I just got back from a vacation and ate a lot of ice cream. It's a lot of vacation. I I do work sometimes, (laughs) Um, but we did eat a lot of ice cream on this vacation, and so I'm gonna start there. So imagine that you're at the beach and there are two ice cream vendors and they're competing for your business. Now there's a lot of different ways that they can try to differentiate themselves to get you to buy ice cream from them. But if you hold the quality of the ice cream constant, the location, the service, it may at the very end of the day just come down to price. The vendor who offers me the better deal, the lower price on my ice cream, is more likely to get my business. We think about countries competing for business investment using taxes. Taxes are sort of the price that they're going to charge a business to operate in their country. So that was easy. That's the end of today's lesson. Uh, Taxes are ice cream. I'm going to be in the lake. See you later. It's so simple. Cue the music (laughs) and we're done. We're done. But all kidding aside, countries do compete for business in some way. And that was an interesting concept for me to think about um, as I started my you know, career in, in taxes. So let's be serious and imagine a world where Lisa and I are the only two countries and we're competing for your business and we both are currently offering a tax rate of 40%. There are lots of things that we can highlight about why our country is better for you. We could talk about our well-trained workforce, our good infrastructure, our strong legal institutions. But if a company finds at the end of the day that they're going to get similar support for their business in both of our countries, then we're kind of stuck. And so if I want to attract your business, one thing I can do to distinguish my country is offer you a lower tax rate, lower than that 40%. So for sake of argument today, I'm going to choose 32% as the tax rate for my country because I'm only 32 years old. (laughs) Okay, let's just leave that one alone for a second. Thanks, you can can let one go. (laughs) 
I'm not gonna just sit back and let you get all the investment. So in response to you lowering your rate to a fictitious age, um, I'm gonna lower my rate to 29 because that's apparently how old I am. And I will let you have that. <laughs> so stop it, okay? So if you're gonna go to 29, then I'm just gonna go to 20. And not just that, in addition to offering a lower headline rate to all businesses, I'm gonna start excluding things from my tax base, like revenue from intangible assets or any intercompany interest payments. So I'm not even gonna tax businesses on all of their income. Okay, well then I'm gonna start negotiating sweetheart tax holidays with particular companies in exchange for them to come and invest in my country. You would do that. I would do that. The bottom line is it's worth it for countries to give up a point or two on a tax rate or to exclude certain types of income or offer certain types of incentives in return for investment. And when I say investment, I, I, I mean not just capital investment, but also the workforce. So we're talking about property taxes on the new building, the houses that the workforce is gonna live in. We're talking about payroll taxes that we're gonna collect from the workforce on their incomes, all sorts of other things that I'm gonna get in return for luring that company to my country instead of yours. Yep. and. We like to focus on the corporate income tax rate a lot, and I'm not going to pretend to know what the mix is in other countries, but in the U.S., corporate income taxes are like the smallest revenue source. We get way more from individual workers, income taxes, payroll taxes, things of that nature. So it turns out that this competition might actually be a good rational decision for each of these countries, country Lisa and country Bridget, because the benefits of doing so outweigh the costs. But the real winner in this back and forth of who can offer the lowest tax isn't either one of us. In the end, the real winner is the company that gets all the tax breaks. And the only way around this is for you and me to go sit lakeside and have a little chat with each other, maybe have a little glass of wine, and come to an agreement, an under-the-table agreement, that we're going to collude. So I don't know why, but the word the word collude has always seemed bad to me. So I'm gonna it's say, true. can we say cooperate? Cooperate sounds nicer. Okay, so we're gonna cooperate. And when you think about this, this happens all the time. I know from personal experience that Lisa and I and the rest of our PhD cohort coordinated, colluded, whatever that you want to say. That was collusion. That was definitely collusion. <laughs> Under the they can't fail us all mentality. Um, so sometimes you have you have to do it. You have to cooperate with your you know your peers in order to get a better outcome. So yeah, basically this is a way where countries can say, look, we're the only two options this company has. And if we agree to stop competing on the tax rate and instead collude or cooperate to agree on a floor, let's say 15%, some companies are gonna choose to locate in your country, some companies are gonna choose to locate in my country. But one of the things that we hope is that people are gonna make their decision for something other than taxes. And in general, we don't want people making decisions just for taxes. And assuming words countries were just as attractive along these other dimensions, then we're gonna end up splitting the investment. And I'm happy to take half. I'll give you half, I'll take half, and we collect more taxes. It's win-win-win for us. So what a minimum tax does is it essentially, it flips the script. And now the countries are the winners. The companies become, if you wanna be harsh, Losers. you could say that they're the perdedores now because they have to pay a higher income tax. And so when all countries collude and agree not to charge less than this agreed upon rate, we basically eliminated the race to the bottom, raised corporate tax collections across the board, and disincentivized companies from making decisions strictly for tax purposes, which on day one of both of our classes, we tell students you should never, ever do.
right, so we've talked so far about why a global minimum tax could be helpful. And everything we've said so far sounds really good. So now we just have to get into the, you know, silly little details about how it's gonna work. So the key mechanism behind the global minimum tax is what the OECD's proposal calls an income inclusion rule. And to be completely blunt on the surface, it's really, really simple. If the income of a foreign subsidiary is taxed below the minimum rate that we all agree upon, that income is going to get included in the income of the parent corporation so that the parent corporation's jurisdiction can top up the tax rate to the minimum rate. Pretty simple. You're right. That does sound pretty simple. And for U.S. taxpayers, it's actually pretty similar to a current provision that we have under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which Congress lovingly called the guilty. And it's a way for one particular country, in this case the U.S., to tax the foreign profits of its multinationals that it thinks are otherwise too lightly taxed. It's just that we did it alone. We didn't even try to get other countries to sign up to it, so there was no cooperation. And the cooperation is where the magic really happens. All right, got it. So thank you for that quick overview and for being clear that the income inclusion rule is simple only on the surface because mm -hmm. now we're going to start to dig into things and see that the computation gets tricky pretty fast. So for starters, you said we just have to include income, but uh, how do we measure income? I imagine that sounds like a pretty simple question to non-accountants, you know, income's income, um, but not so fast. In accounting, we have multiple types of income. Companies prepare taxable income in accordance with local tax laws. They also prepare book income in accordance with financial accounting standards. And let's just note that for a multinational, you could be following the rules of 30 different countries to do both of those things. So the OECD proposal starts with book income, which we're preparing in accordance with financial accounting standards in any particular country, but then it's going to make adjustments for so-called called permanent differences between book and taxable income that tend to be common across jurisdictions. Things like excluding dividends received from a controlled subsidiary, which we would include in our book income, but we don't really want to include in our taxable income. Then we're going to make adjustments for timing differences between book and taxable income. For example, companies can often recognize more depreciation expense for tax purposes than for book purposes in the early years of an asset's life. Yeah, and adjusting for those timing differences is really important because without those adjustments, it could look like a firm's effective tax rate in a country is jumping from year to year, really low in one year, really high in the next, and then back to low. The proposal has ways of smoothing that out. So book income, after we make these adjustments, gets allocated to each country, and thankfully there's already a set of rules for doing that from BEPS 1.0 that we can sort of piggyback off of so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Similarly, all qualified income tax payments also get allocated to each country. So we've basically got taxes and income allocated to each country, and those are the ingredients that go into computing an effective tax rate, or ETR. That is capturing tax payments in each country as a percentage of income allocated to each country. I'm exhausted. And if the firm's ETR in a particular country is less than that global minimum rate that we all cooperated on and agreed on, more taxes can be collected by the parent's jurisdiction. But wait, there's more. No, I'm done. I'm tired. Doesn't matter. In the OECD's proposal, there's a mechanism for making sure that only a firm's, quote, excess profits are subject to the minimum tax. So now the OECD is going to come in and say, okay, hold on, maybe we don't need to collect all that tax that you just computed. The idea here is to make sure that a firm can cover its operating expenses from substantive investments in labor and capital within a jurisdiction before having to pay additional tax. The OECD plan calls this a quote, 
formulaic substance cough out. Really, really simple phrase. I mean, and very clear what it means. <laughs> and it's similar in spirit to the U.S. guilty tax, which we talked about before, in which only returns above a fixed percentage are considered excess profits that should be taxed. Now, the details here still need to be ironed out, but the idea is to carve out an allowance for a percentage of payroll depreciation and depletion. Companies can basically subtract that percentage from the top-up tax. So, in a way, this is a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you have enough payroll and tangible assets in a jurisdiction, even though your effective tax rate in that jurisdiction falls below the minimum rate that we all agreed you should have to pay, you don't have to pay. All right, deep breath. We've computed book income, we've made adjustments for permanent and timing differences, we've allocated our income and taxes to each country, we've computed our effective tax rate per country to come up with our parent company top-off rate, which we may not even have to pay at all if we have enough substantive investment in that country. Are we done? Have we computed the minimum tax yet? Not remotely. Inconceivable. Iocane powder comes from Australia, but, but we digress. A little bit. Because we need to know the minimum tax rate. Because if Florin and Gilder had colluded on their tax rate, there would have been no need to kidnap Princess Buttercup to start a war. Inconceivable. I'm over it. You need something to compare the country level effective tax rate to. The US likes 15% and has gotten 130 countries to agree. Ireland, not too surprisingly, would prefer to stick with their current 12.5%. I mean, the Irish are always causing problems. But in the end, it may not matter too much with these few holdout countries won. All right, so I think we're down to the last bit of housekeeping, which is who is subject to this global minimum tax. The tax would only be imposed on corporations with more than $750 million in annual global consolidated revenues. So theoretically, a firm could be subject to the tax if it's large but unprofitable, which seems a little weird to me. But the OECD has chosen this threshold in an attempt to maximize the percentage of global corporate revenues that are subject to the tax while minimizing the number of firms that are subject to it. So the goal is to get 90% of the revenues from only about 10 to 15% of the companies. And now I realize that I lied about this being the last bit of housekeeping because what has been bothering me this whole time is what are we going to do, what is the OEC going to do if some countries hold out and don't agree? Like, I, I'm worried most about the Irish because I am Irish and I know we like, we're stubborn and we like to fight. I wasn't going to say it before. <laughs> I'm going to let you dig your own grave there. So when, when my people refuse to, refuse to cooperate, what are we going to do about that? Explaining all the different mechanisms, I think, would be at least the content of two other podcasts. So in a very small and completely oversimplified nutshell, let's just say the OECD blueprint, they've thought of that. It includes mechanisms to mitigate the impact of holdouts. Resistance is futile. <laughs> favorite part of our show. Yes. The good, the bad, and the ugly aspects of the global minimum tax. And we're going to completely turn it on its head today, and I'm going to start with the good. This is what happens when you get B on back-to-back vacation. <laughs> I've become, I become a much more agreeable the person. The world is great! <laughs> anyway, one likely intended benefit is 
da, 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 increased corporate tax collections. So the OECD estimates that tax revenues will increase by up to 4%, which may not sound a lot, but that's between 60 and 100 billion US dollars per year. And those estimates are actually using a more lenient policy than what we've been focusing on today. A coordinated effort also reduces incentives for unilateral policies, like, for example, the U.S. is guilty, the digital services taxes proposed by France and a few other countries, and some others. And the OECD estimates in a worst-case scenario, that's their words, not mine, the negative GDP impact of these unilateral tax policies could be more than 1% of GDP, so really slowing down economic growth worldwide. And another benefit, which is exactly what we said at the beginning of the podcast, is that a global minimum tax should reduce this race to the bottom, and it should also reduce tax-motivated distortions to supply chains and investment. All good things indeed, but um, there could also be some unintended, but uh, let's say not unforeseeable outcomes as well. And I'm going to go ahead and call that the bad. So for example, a boatload of research, and I don't just use boats because there's one going by right now, generally finds a negative response of investment to taxes. So one unintended but perfectly foreseeable consequence could be a reduction in investment, growth, productivity, and GDP resulting from increasing the tax burden on these multinationals. Now there are some OECD researchers out there who estimate that this effect is likely to be very small. And they base this conclusion on the observation that highly profitable multinationals aren't very sensitive to tax rates, relatively speaking, and those are the ones that are most likely to be impacted by a global minimum tax. But it's totally reasonable to assume that at least some less profitable companies will be hit by the tax, which could actually dampen investment. And that just leaves the ugly, which is good because my laptop is about to die. There are still ways for companies to get around the minimum tax, and frankly, it's not rocket science. Remember that get out of jail free card I mentioned? Yep. All you gotta do, increase payroll and assets in your low tax countries, and bada bing, bada boom, you don't have to pay any additional tax. So I have research with Marcel Olbert at London Business School that shows increased investments in low tax countries as multinationals try to make it look like all the profits that they're shifting there and report there are really earned and produced by real operations. We're just going to continue to see that happening. There's a reason housing prices in Dublin are skyrocketing and corporate tax collections in Ireland are going off the charts as more and more companies try to make it look like they really have operations in Ireland. They're not just using it as a tax haven. Where there's a will, there's a way. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.